When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you, Tom. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. And you've done so much uh, to put ethics and compliance on the map and also to, to orient it. This is Tom Fox. In today's episode, I visit with Susan Divers from LRN. We take a look at the recently released LRN Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report, taking a deep dive into its findings, what is new and different this year, and how you can use the information to create a high-quality ethics and compliance program in your organization. It's a great podcast. I know you'll enjoy it. There's lots of great information in this podcast in the show notes. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And today, I'm thrilled to have back with me my friend and colleague, Susan Divers. Susan, as I've known Susan for a long time, we've both been in this space. She's one of the uh, thought leaders in this space, and I'm thrilled to have you back. So, Susan, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. And you've done so much uh, to put ethics and compliance on the map and also to, to orient it in the right direction, which I know we'll get into today in the podcast. Well, Susan, thanks so much. Uh, Susan, could you tell the audience your current role at LRN? Sure, Tom. So I've been at LRN six years um, after I retired as a chief ethics and compliance officer, and my title is thought uh, leadership and strategic direction. So I basically get to spend time thinking about what works in terms of program effectiveness and where our best practice is going. In other words, looking around the corner. Well, Susan, we're here today to visit about the uh, LRN 2022 Ethics and Compliance Effectiveness Report. It's entitled Rising to the Challenges of the New Normal. I've had the opportunity to visit with you about uh, prior reports. I've had the opportunity to work with you on prior reports. So uh, I was very excited uh, when it came out. I'm even more excited uh, to talk about it with you. Could you uh, kind of orient our audience as to uh, what is the effectiveness report? What does it measure? And more importantly, how how is it generated? Um, Well, Tom, we've been doing this for at least 10 years, um, probably longer. And so every year, LRN does a survey in the ethics and compliance community. Uh, And this year, we had 1,200 responses, which is really a a good, robust response. And more than half came from outside the United States. And the vast majority were uh, from people who work at organizations with 1,000 or more employees. And So what we do is we ask them questions, excuse me, about their ethics and compliance program, um, and then we grade them based on that. Um, And it's it's not based on checklists, like how often you upgrade your code of conduct, 
but rather about levels of respect and trust and focus on values. And then um, we also ask questions about, <clears throat> excuse me, the current state of their programs. So for the last two years, we've focused on the impact of the pandemic on ethics and compliance programs. Or rather, let's maybe turn directly to the report now, Susan. Um, could you start with perhaps some of the key findings for 2022's report? Sure, Tom. Um, I will go back just a, one year in time um, because I think it's, it's relevant to what we found this year. Um, last year, which was when the pandemic was raging, uh, we did our annual report and we found that programs actually emerged stronger from the pandemic um, and were at the epicenter of their company's responses. And we found that the vast majority uh, said that they relied principally on values to get through the pandemic uh, and um, to ensure compliance. So we thought that might be an anomalous response, but this year the, the response was even stronger. So it validates what we were seeing. And um, to get a little bit more specific, um, last year, 79% of uh, the compliance and ethics professionals that we surveyed said that their ethical culture emerged stronger as a result of the pandemic. And this year, it was 82%. So it went up. Um, so that was a, a major finding. Um, that companies really pulled together um, in most instances and were able to get through the pandemic by motivating people rather than uh, dictating what needed to be done um, or threatening penalties if it wasn't. Um, a second big trend we saw, and it's not surprising when you think about it, um, is that programs really pivoted to make their ethical their ethics programs more employee friendly and accessible, and um, with the onset of work from home, um, employees were sometimes competing with their families for bandwidth or for access to computers, um, and so focusing on how do you actually make it easier for employees to do what they need to do and to get the help that they need was definitely a trend we saw. And then the other thing we saw, which is also very positive and heartening, is we saw a lot of innovation and a lot of shift towards um, making training more appealing, um, simplifying policies, um, and other activities that, that, again, make the programs more employee-centered. And those were, I think, the, the main things that we found this year. Uh, Susan, one of the things that I think you and LRN are probably lead the discussion on is values, uh, separate and apart from culture, separate and apart from ethics, and you really talk about values. I was wondering if you could say a few words about uh, why the value of values is so important and why LRN really leads the discussion around values. Oh, sure, Tom. That's obviously a subject um, at the center of LRN. And the reason we lead that discussion is that um, 
I think it was 15 years ago when our CEO, then CEO, Jeff Seidman, who's now the chairman of our board and our founder, wrote a book called How on basically how organizations outperform and what enables them to do that. And the one word answer to that is values. And during the pandemic in particular, um, the examples of companies relying upon values uh, were just really remarkable. Um, I'll just name a few, but um, one major retailer uh, had its executives, his, their executives volunteered to give up compensation in order to keep stores open and people working. Um, in another instance, um, a major electrical grid provider, it's, it's actually in our report last year, Braskin had employees volunteer to self-isolate at plants for 30 days at a time in order to keep the grid going. Um, and we saw a lot of stories like that. We just, I just did a podcast with, or actually a webinar, um, and one of the participants was the CECO of a large French re retailer named Auchan. And with Auchan, um, the employees kept the stores open so people could buy food and Auchan um, made every effort to keep people safe. So my point about all of those um, examples is that you couldn't compel people to do that. I mean, you couldn't sort of have a law or have a rule that says you will put yourself at risk so that people can buy food or you will isolate for 30 days at a time to keep the grid going um, or you will give up pay. Uh, or other benefits, um, but people did that. And that's because they had values. Um, that's because they felt committed to the company and to their stakeholders and to the health of, of the community at large. Um, and I think that is just, you know, <laughs> if you need proof, uh, there it is for sure. One of the concepts that I've learned in working with uh, you, Susan, LRN, and, and reading these reports over the years is the high performance premium. I was wondering if you could give a few words about the high performance premium and why, uh, why how, it, I guess, at this, I'm sorry, LRN developed it and its importance uh, that uh, you guys put on it for compliance programs. Sure, Tom. Um, well, when I... Uh, took the report over when I first came six years ago, um, we decided it was, it was right at the height of, I think, the realization that I know you share with us and that you and I have talked about many times that checklists don't work. Um, you can have a program that upgrades their code of conduct every year, that trains a large proportion of their employees, uh, that that does all has a code of conduct, um, does all the right things, but you can still have major misconduct. And the Me Too movement was an example of that. Um, the Boeing scandal, uh, PG&E, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, and so six years ago, we said, look, we're just not going to count. We're not going to use checklists anymore because they're meaningless and misleading. So we started asking people questions in our annual survey 
about levels of trust, levels of respect, levels of organizational justice, and transparency. And based on those responses, we grade programs um, as high-performing, middle-tier, um, and less effective. Um, and year over year, that methodology has been validated because what we see is that the high-performing programs really do um, things better and more effectively. Um, in the report, it's on page 11, actually. Um, if you take a look at that, uh, it's very dramatic that high-performing programs did better in terms of meeting the COVID challenge. Um, they actually strengthened and streamlined their policies. They had more effective engagement by their board of directors. Uh, they made it easier for employees to engage. Um, and they had more support from um, the boards and, and the C-suite. Um, so it, it, what it basically, another way of saying it is that companies and organizations that focus on values and that really focus on building their ethical culture, and I know that's another um, preoccupation that we share uh, because ethical culture really determines what happens, um, they do it better. Um, and if you take a look at the report, I think there is some really helpful insights for ethics and compliance programs that want to go to that next stage um, and some guideposts along the way for how to get there. So I'd like to turn to a couple of the findings that intrigue me, and you touched on one already uh, in a couple of different responses, but that's the role of managers and leaders. And we we always say, and probably oversay, it's tone at the top, but it's much more than tone. It is you know, actual leadership. It's actually walking the walk. It's actually doing the deal. But it's it's putting your values into your business practice. And how have you found that to be so critical? Well, that you're right. That is walking the walk, um, as well as talking the talk. And one thing I can point to is during the pandemic, there were a number of scandals um, on all ends of the political spectrum of leaders saying, um, you can't gather, you can't go to a party, you have to be masked. And then they did. Um, and that is a classic example to me of organizational justice um, and it failing. Um, because it's basically saying there's one rule for those at, at the bottom and the middle, and then there's one rule for those at the top, and we don't have to follow the rules. And all the studies that I've ever seen since I've been in this area show that organizational justice is absolutely fundamental. Uh, you don't have an ethics program if you don't have organizational justice. If there's one set of rules for um, the leaders and the successful performers, and then there's a different set for everyone else. Um, so the role of the leader is critical in terms of modeling the behavior that you want um, employees to follow, and also in providing that investment of personal time and communication and engagement. And we really saw that. There's a lot of um, statistics and findings and data in this year's survey 
showing that um, leaders really stepped up. Um, you know, we heard stories of CEOs um, having weekly town hall meetings, setting up mailboxes for employees to email them directly. Um, and we saw examples of middle managers really making sure and checking in with their teams, um, not just that they could do their work, but how they were feeling um, and how they were coping with the stress of the pandemic. And so it, it, what, we, what we found is that personal involvement as well as that commitment to actually walking the walk um, has a huge impact on ethical culture and on resilience and flexibility in an organization. Susan, one of the things the Department of Justice has told us uh, basically since um, the first evaluation of corporate compliance program programs document was released in 2019 is that it's not training, it's effective training. And the DOJ really focused on a couple of different things in the update of 2020, they talked about targeted training, perhaps entertaining training. Uh, but you found that two keys, or LRNs found that two keys are access and relevance. I was wondering if you could talk about those a little bit. Sure, Tom. Um, and that, that also brings up an area that I think is really ripe for improvement. If you step back a bit, maybe 10 years ago, the model for training was you had a 45-minute course and I used to call it Soviet-style training because it was like reading a manual on how to fix a truck uh, written in the USSR. And, um, you know, it was basically beating someone over the head for 45 minutes um, on a topic and throwing a ton of information at them and then saying, great, you're trained. Um, you know all you need to know about um, anti-corruption. But as we both know, that isn't an effective way of training people, and it's not values-based. Um, yes, people need to know what the rules are, but they need to know the why. Um, and they need to know what the basic principles are, because you can't have a rule for every occasion. So the first thing, and this is something we've talked about many times before, is that the training should be values-based, and it should be individualized and tailored to the degree that you can um, some of that can involve test out. Um, some of it can involve um, customized content, and that is something that DOJ talks about to address specific risks or challenges. Um, and shorter, more targeted training courses and videos uh, are also much more effective. Um, we do a lot of work in the policy area and our approach is you shouldn't have to read um, 25 pages of turgid legalese in order to get to the section that deals with facilitation payments or um, disclosing a conflict of interest. It should be organized, searchable, easy to understand, and the same is really true in training. And then the area that we, we really see room for improvement is in um, mobile apps, um, there's a great story in last year's program effectiveness report, and all these are available on our website, um, from Dell. And they basically moved their entire major compliance training initiative onto, um, have their, they work with us, onto our mobile app. 
they were able to get a very high completion rate because employees had it on their mobile phones. Uh, and again, they weren't competing with their kids who were trying to do remote learning or maybe their spouses who also needed the computer. They were able to take their training as and when they could using a mobile device. But um, again, going back to the report, um, what we're seeing is only 25% uh, currently of um, those we surveyed are using mobile apps. At the same time, though, we did see a great interest in using mobile apps. 56% uh, of our respondents said that they had plans uh, and great interest in doing that. And 72% of high-performing programs said that they were really interested in doing that. So I think that's one of the emerging best practices that we'll see more of in the next couple of years. And it won't just be training. It'll be moving other aspects of ENC programs onto mobile apps. We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Susan Divers. Susan, perhaps the either the thing that I enjoyed the most about the report or the thing that I found the most intriguing, I'm not sure which is correct, was really the conclusion about um, now that we've had two plus years of pandemics, pandemic research, uh, people experiencing the pandemic and how that's all going to play out. And you've really identified this as the new normal for compliance programs. So, um, uh I was wondering if you could give us a few remarks about what will the new normal be coming out of all of this. And as we record this podcast of uh, during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, I think we have to throw that into the mix as well. Yeah. What do you see in terms of uh, compliance programs, resilience, and just now doing business as usual after all of these catastrophic events? Well, that's that's a great question, Tom. Um, and, and I should have also noted that um, the very tragic uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine uh, is also a good example of, of companies living their values because even companies that aren't affected by the sanctions necessarily, such as Pepsi or Coca-Cola, have taken a moral stance and are living their values and um, restricting their engagement with Russia. Um, so that's another example of, of values in action. Um, but what all of this points towards is the need for flexibility and pivoting. Um, at AECOM, we had Pete Schoomaker come in once and speak, and he said everybody likes to think that life is an opera in three acts, but it's actually a rodeo, and you never know what's coming out of the gate. And as a Texan, you'll appreciate that. And so what we saw was that programs were generally were very good at adapting. Um, I did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Forrest Deegan, who's the wonderful, thoughtful CECO of Victoria's Secret now. And he made the point that people may have been holding back um, and thinking, well, maybe the world really will return to normal the way we used to know it. And now people aren't. Um, I think 
everyone is generally recognized that um, things have changed. And certainly the Russian invasion of the Ukraine really shows that things have changed. They're moving on. And there's more focus, again, on how do I make it easier for employees um, moving away from a sort of command control uh, you know, former prosecutor model, which was very popular 20 years ago, of there's a rule for every occasion, and if you don't do it, you're going to get punished, towards how do I motivate people who may be, you know, working from home um, and under stress uh, or trying to figure out uh, how they uh, perform their work remotely or in a hybrid situation how do I make it easier for that employee? So that's definitely a big focus of the new normal. And another big focus uh, of the new normal is adapting. Um, and companies that had operations in Russia or have operations in Russia are obviously um, going to have to really uh, keep uh, 24-7 focus on what they need to do uh, to protect employees and to try to sustain them if they're there uh, or in the Ukraine? Um, and then how do they adapt their programs and their compliance to that too? So, you know, that emphasis on um, making things employee-friendly, making them easier, um, making sure that leaders are visible um, and that they walk the walk as well as talk the talk, um, and communication, that's something I haven't touched on. But as you know, it's not enough to just train someone. The messages really have to be reinforced um, through communication. And it should be communication at, at every level, really, of the company. Um, or as one of our partners likes to say, get it in the drinking water. Um, so I think that that's going to be very much part of the new normal as we go forward. Susan, um, as you know, uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco gave a speech in October, and she identified culture as a key component of any compliance program. It was in the context of her overall remarks about DOJ enforcement and white-collar crime, and it was really the first time I could recall the Department of Justice talking substantively about culture. And so I wanted to, to use that as a way to ask um, where do you and perhaps even the greater LRN see the issue of culture uh, as opposed to the policies and procedures and the sort of technical requirements of a compliance program and values as well uh, down the road into 2025 and beyond? That's another great question, Tom. Um, well, we have an analogy that we like at LRN, which is the rules and procedures and policies are the, the skeleton, if you will, um, of your body, um, your ENC program, but culture is the heart and the blood. Um, and again, we've seen examples time and time again of companies that have had the scaffolding and the skeleton, but not the culture. Um, and uh, I just looked, I just saw on Netflix Boeing's, um, the documentary about Boeing called The Case Against Boeing, and it it is a really stark uh, examination of how Boeing's culture went from strong, ethical, and safety-minded 
to not strong and not so safety minded um, and leading to the crash of the two uh, 737 MAX. So culture um, is really another way of putting it is it's what happens when no one's looking. It's what the unwritten rules are. So you can talk all you want about um, your purpose and your values, but if the messages people are receiving and the rewards they're receiving are geared um, in a different direction towards sales at any price or making the numbers at any price or bypassing safety uh, in order to get a product to market, then your culture is at complete odds with your scaffolding and your skeleton, and you're going to have a problem. So I think it's really good that um, the regulators are catching up with that. I know the SEC, I think Mary Jo White was talking about it, at least in 2015 when she headed the SEC. But I think it's, it's a really positive development that DOJ is now much more focused on it and we really recommend uh, to our partners that they do culture surveys that are directed at understanding dynamics such as trust uh, and organizational justice and respect and transparency, um, because that's what really drives whether a program, in fact, has impact or not. And I'm sure you would agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Susan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on uh, the topics we touched upon in this podcast, get a copy of perhaps the, uh, or perhaps get a copy of the program effectiveness report. What would be the best way for them to do so? Ah, thanks, Tom. Um, we hope that people do. And um, if you go on LRN.com um, and just search for the program effectiveness report, um, it should come right up. Um, and thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thanks. And for any listeners who have not visited the LRN website uh, ever or in some time, I would urge you to do so. There's a ton and a half of resources. This report will give you uh, just some great information that you can use to test and benchmark your own report and really show what is a um, high-performance premium and how uh, big of a difference it can make. Susan, I greatly look forward. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you by now have checked out our five-part series on Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance, which appeared on the Innovation and Compliance podcast series, also on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's an area that is not often discussed, but it's something that every compliance practitioner needs to be cognizant of, and I hope you will use that podcast series to go down and talk to the head of tax at your organization to see how tax can help support compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.